listening to Green State, a podcast by the Oregon Department of Environmental Quality, the agency responsible for restoring, maintaining, and enhancing the quality of Oregon's air, land, and water. On Green State, you'll hear about DEQ projects, programs, and emerging environmental issues facing Oregonians. Welcome to the inaugural episode of Green State. I'm Lauren Wordis. And I'm Dylan Darling. We are communication staff for the Oregon Department of Environmental Quality. We are using our high place of power being communications people for the state to start a podcast. Lauren, I think we're the first people to start a podcast this year. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Certainly, I don't think anyone's had any spare time on their hands. No one's been making podcasts ever before. Yeah, I think this is this is a pretty special moment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is definitely. Yeah, well, I had the curve on something. Well, also, we're just using a, a high place of power to start this podcast. And hey, maybe we'll become famous. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, at the very least, my mom's going to listen. I might count her dog among our listeners. I That doesn't add downloads, but, you know, I might bribe a few other family members or just download it onto their phones unknowingly, you know, whatever I can do. So yeah, we'll at least become more famous amongst the people who already know us. Absolutely. Yeah, I definitely got to thank my mom. She supported me this whole way. And uh, yeah, hopefully she's at least tuning in. Uh, but you know, baby steps, we'll, we'll get there. But for real, we'll start on this podcast because part of our job as communicators at DEQ is to tell the agency's stories and explain some of the work that DEQ, the Oregon Department of Environmental Quality, what it does, what this agency does. Oh, yeah. So I think most people are familiar with the vehicle testing stations that we operate because they interact with DEQ once every couple of years when they need to get their car smog tested. But DEQ does a lot of other things as well to protect Oregon's air, land, and water, which we'll cover certainly in this episode and then in future episodes. But today we're going to start with a topic that is likely on a lot of people's minds, and that's wildfire smoke. Yeah, well, gosh, it has been a rough past, uh, well, geez, decade for smoke. But then 2020 was obviously the worst year we've ever seen in Oregon. You and I are both from Oregon and can vouch for the fact that we used to live in a time when wildfire season was much different in the state. And now we've watched as the, the fire seasons have become worse in California. Those types of fires elsewhere have impacted places like the Willamette Valley. But in September 2020, the Oregon wildfires created the worst air quality that we've ever seen in the state to the point that it was literally off the charts. It was more than we could measure. It was truly awful. I can certainly remember I was up in Portland seeing this big dark cloud slowly descending over the city, but also getting pictures from friends and family and co-workers around the state who were seeing orange skies. And while it's not necessarily a new thing, smoke isn't a new thing to a lot of people in this state, to have it have the impact be so intense and so widespread was was a new sensation for the state. As we go deep on this conversation, we are just going to learn much more about what really was going on with all that smoke. Like you said, it's been on everyone's mind. So we thought we'd kick off this podcast with a three-part series that we're calling Where There's Smoke. 
It's a big topic to cover, so we've organized it into past, present, and future. This series will cover everything from air quality before DEQ existed, to the 2020 wildfires, to the future of air quality in Oregon, and what to do to protect your health. So today we're going to look at the history of air quality issues, which weren't initially related directly to wildfire smoke. And while we're here to tell the story, of course, we couldn't do it without the help of the experts, which include folks from DEQ, the U.S. Forest Service, Oregon Health Authority, and the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, among a lot of others. Now it's time to go back. You and I both remember Oregon before wildfires season looked quite the way it does now, but that doesn't necessarily mean that was Oregon before there were air quality issues. I talked with Anthony Barnack and Dan Johnson at DEQ's lab to get their historical perspective. Anthony Barnick. I'm the Ambient Air Quality Monitoring Coordinator. I'm Dan Johnson and my cat. Cat is Elfie. I'm the air, an air monitoring specialist with DEQ at the lab. Uh, I've been doing a lot of work in uh, particulate monitoring and uh, low-cost sensors. So tell me about um, the beginning of air quality monitoring in Oregon. When did this really get started and who was doing it? Going back and looking at some of the old documents, I found um, monitoring data for meteorology back as far as 1930. And I also found some information about uh, visibility from the U.S. Weather Bureau from 1949. So probably do monitoring just for visibility and for aircraft, probably back into the 30s, specifically for air monitoring. The uh, Air Pollution Control Program was formed in 1951 by the state government. And they started monitoring for a particulate fallout in 1952 and for a total suspended particulate in 1953. So the air pollution control program was the original air quality program in the state. And it predated DEQ by, let's see, it was formed in 1951, so 18 years. Yeah. So we were well underway monitoring for air quality before DEQ was started. So the air pollution control program was rolled into the sanitary authority in 1959. And so the sanitary authority did the air monitoring for all sorts of gases, uh, sulfur dioxide, nitrogen dioxide, carbon monoxide, sulfates, nitrates, and metals, fluorides. uh, They even did monitoring for radiation in 1962, which was during the Cuban Missile Crisis. And they did that up until the formation of DEQ in 1969. I think in the 50s and uh, 60s, it was almost, it was more of a uh, trying to see what was out there and trying to learn how to do monitoring. So it was more of an assessment and and, uh, development process because there were no standards until I think 1967 was the development of the first health standards. That was in association with the Clean Air Act? Well, the Clean Air Act, the 1965 amendment said they were going to create standards, but they didn't create standards until 1971, I believe. 70, I think there was something. 1970, yeah. yeah. So Oregon didn't want to wait. So Oregon created its own standards for total suspended particulate in 1967. And so that's when they also created uh, standards for uh, regulations for open burning and for uh, wigwam burning. And just a quick insert here, we'll learn more about wigwam burners in a moment. So tell me about DEQ's 
doing this air quality monitoring and, you know, what we were looking for and what our role was when we first started? Well, I just want to go back a few years um, before DEQ. There was some local air authorities. And those, um, I think when DEQ started in 1969, it, it took on that staff and those people in that work. And it just kept that process going. And they did monitoring for, there was 85 uh, particular fallout sites in the late 60s around the state. And they also did gas monitoring for uh, carbon monoxide, sulfur dioxide, nitrogen dioxide, and ozone in the cities. And the uh, field burning monitoring was well underway by that time, by the time DEQ started. Uh, Dan, do you have anything to add to that? Doing all the talking. I'm good. No, I, I was going to I was going to lead on to the uh, Clean Air Act a little bit if you guys are ready to go on. So the, sure. the Clean Air Act in 1970, you know, was passed uh, during the Nixon administration, and uh, that that set federal standards for for the six criteria pollutant. The six criteria pollutants that Anthony and Dan are talking about are carbon monoxide, nitrogen dioxide, ozone, sulfur dioxide lead and fine particulate, which includes smoke. And it also, you know, said now states are going to have to develop a plan how they're going to achieve those standards because a lot of states, you know, they were over the standard for CO and particulates and lead. So that's, you know, it's kind of an ongoing process today where the standards are continue to be lowered and we look for ways to achieve those standards. And you know, the monitoring informs where we need to, you know, put the energy in on that. Yeah, and do you recall when uh, when that first came about, did Oregon have places that were above the standards? Uh, yeah, they did. Oregon was, what, out of compliance for what, Anthony? Ozone, CO? I don't know if we were out of compliance for TSP, but I know that later on in the 80s, we were out of compliance. There were non-attainment areas in seven different communities in Oregon. In this context, out of compliance means not meeting federal clean air levels for certain pollutants. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. I think the Western states kind of led the way on these, you know, efforts to clean up the air, to, you know, know what was in the air and to find ways to improve their air quality. So, you know, vehicle controls and things like that were a big step that they took at that time. California, Oregon were some of the first states to have environmental agencies in Oregon, the biggest step they took was wigwam burners. And uh, if you don't know what a wigwam burner is, it's the uh, mills would take all their sawdust and their waste and they would put it into this conical shaped, very large, kind of almost like a tower, and then they would light it off. They would do that so they would put it in that controlled environment so they wouldn't just burn piles and there'd be uh, maybe ashes going everywhere. I mean, embers going everywhere, but it did produce a lot of the total spin up particulate and fallout particulate. So DEQ started regulating those in the 60s, and when we were formed, they were already being regulated by the other control agencies, and now, you know, they were outlawed probably in the 80s, and, you know, once they outlawed those and put, started putting controls on industry, the levels dropped dramatically. They would just smoke out the entire area. So it sounds like they were saying that before DEQ and the Clean Air Act, there was some monitoring going on by different groups just kind of to see what was out there, what was in the air. Then the Clean Air Act comes along and we start to identify some specific sources of pollution, like these wigwam burners that mills used to have all around Oregon. A wigwam burner is this 
tall, freestanding cone-shaped structure. It can be 30 to 60 feet high. And they had these at sawmills and lumber mills and places where they treated wood. And it was sort of their method to dispose of things. So they would put leftover waste and treated wood and that sort of thing in there and light it on fire and it would produce a ton of smoke on these properties and you can still see some of the remnants of those today yeah so growing up in the northwest wigwam bonos though something i've seen out there and heard people talk about and i had to take a moment and go down a rabbit hole on the internet to find out more about these. I specifically looked for photos of wigwam bonos and smoke and the whole notion of the big steel cone was that it would catch the embos, keep the burning wood from starting any fires nearby, but allowing all the smoke just to, there was nothing really to filter out that smoke or do anything to to control the smoke so you had a lot of smoke coming out of these and it sounds like when we're talking about air pollution we're measuring this in particulate fallout yeah that was a term i'd never heard before anthony and dan talked to me about that and the development of monitoring in oregon it's wild to me that we used to weigh the filters I mean, why not? But it just sounds so simple. Though, as Anthony said, the principles of air quality monitoring are pretty much the same. Well, there's particularly comes in many different sizes. The particulate fallout is the largest size, and that's considered to be ash or anything that actually just goes a little distance and falls out onto your car or your yard or something. And it's, it's really more of a nuisance. And total suspended particulate is particulate that stays in the air and that actually goes into your lungs and is actually a health problem. But that can be anything up to 60 micrometers, which is pretty large, or 80 micrometers. Whereas nowadays we look at PM 2.5, which is 2.5 micrometers. So we're actually looking at much smaller particulate these days that goes way deeper into your lungs. Yeah, definitely. A little more high-tech gizmos now, but at the end of the day, that's what they're trying to figure out, just what's in the air, how much it weighs, what type of effect it might have on people. There's a blast bit of the history we need to cover, and that's wood stoves and field burning. These two topics had really important implications for the future regulations at DEQ. Let's take field burning first. Because it's a great example of air quality, not just from a health perspective, but a simple visibility standpoint. Dan is going to mention something called Black Tuesday. Not a retail event, Black Tuesday was in August 1969, and it marks when then-Governor Tom McCall visited the Eugene-Springfield area and witnessed the smoke was coming off of field bones. That year was the first time there was a ban on field burning. Go way back, field burning started, well, I believe it started in after 1948 when the Oregon State agronomist recommended field burning for health of grass seed farming. And so... Uh, it had become, it started to become a real problem when they were burning all the field in the Willamette Valley in the 40s and or after that time in the 50s. And into the 60s, you see a lot of complaints about field burning, a lot of um, concern about smoking out of the, of the um, entire Willamette Valley. And for weeks on end, they would be smoked out. I think in 1967, before DEQ started, is the state put field burning regulations into place. And initially, the um, sanitary authority's job was to monitor the particulate from field burning and do the meteorolo meteorology monitoring for uh, 
weather conditions that would favor smoke going up in the air and dispersing instead of laying on the ground. And so the real, really the field burning uh, monitoring really began in, I think, 1967, before DEQ. And it was done by the sanitary authority. I'm looking at the report here and it says uh, 350,000 acres a year were being burned in the late 60s. So that's a lot. And a famous picture here of Black Tuesday when apparently they, you know, burned during an inversion and it kind of smoked out Eugene. That started to get some attention, it sounds like. And after that, they started to limit the number of acres that could be burned. And it's continued throughout, you know, through the 70s and 80s. I think in the 80s, it really took off. They used to be field burning all over the place in the Willamette Valley, and they would drive around and catch people doing illegal field burning when they weren't supposed to. And they would fly around and they would look for plumes. And, you know, they had a plane and they'd fly around looking for plumes and report them. So after Black Tuesday, the state legislature makes efforts to phase down field burning. But 19 years later, in 1988, 168,000 acres are still being burned in Oregon for grass seed farming. But... In August of that year, 1988, smoke from the field burning was so bad that it obscured vision on I-5 North just south of Albany and led to a 21-vehicle pileup killing seven people and injuring 37. We'll link to some of that original coverage in the show notes if you want to check it out. After that, the state legislature phased out the number of acres that could be burned down below 50,000. And as Anthony said, very little field burning is allowed now especially near populated areas. Okay, wood stoves next. Well, wood stoves uh, smoke has always been there. It's just maybe it was not as not the number one problem because of industry and some of the, and the wigwam burners and other things like that. The PM10 standard was established in 1987. That was a little bit before Anthony and I got into the business. Um, yeah. So that kind of, you know, they, they picked up right away that, you know, several areas in Oregon, I think seven, yeah, seven areas in Oregon were out of compliance for PM10, and they figured that was mostly from wood smoke. So that sort of started the efforts to, you know, improve the, the wood stove technology and uh, educate people about the types of fuel they were burning and things like that. And, you know, th those efforts have been largely successful over the years, although they kind of continue today even. We're still looking to some of those same sources as we uh, get closer and closer to, to the standard. And then the standards continually were lowered and wood stoves started playing much more of a role in standard violations. And so I think we started seeing that in the 90s when the controls on industry really started taking effect. And we could really see a drop in levels, uh, pollution levels. And then what was remaining was wood stoves. It's much easier to put controls on industry. There's one source that gets a permit and you can kind of work with them and require them to put on controls. But when you're talking about the general population, you have to use persuasion a lot of the time. And, you know, telling people not to burn their wood stoves when it's cold out and it's the cheapest way to heat your home is quite difficult. And we have some sort of program, right? Which to your point about incentives for exchanging your wood stove or something like that? Yeah, we, we try to, for areas that are closer above the standard, we, we do try to get them grants, the community's grants to do wood stove changeouts and also uh, insulation of homes. 
We also have a program called Heat Smart, which requires all new wood stoves to be certified wood stoves. And, and, you know, if you're buying a new home, if it has a wood stove, it has to be a certified wood stove. And for context, a micron or micrometer is one millionth of a meter. So you think of those old school like meter sticks and try and divide that in a million little parts. The particulate fallout we were talking about before is something that you can actually see. And it's about 65 micrometers. For, and for even more context, regular printer paper is 50 micrometers. So when we get down to particulate matter that's, you know, 10, so PM10, this is something that's really small. Before coming to DEQ, I was a newspaper reporter. I remember writing about the old standard. Even that was a tiny scale. But now we're talking about something even smaller. And as Anthony and Dan mentioned before, that's where this competition to make monitors came in. Looking back to the 1990s, the monitors existed and the data existed. And it turns out seven locations in Oregon were out of compliance for PM10. So this is how we start to see regulation become more refined. In 1998, EPA updates the Clean Air Act again, now implementing regulations around PM2.5. Remember, printer paper is 50 micrometers, and we were regulating at PM10, and now we're down to 2.5. I have to say, I always understood that when we had better science, we could look at smaller particles, and that that was better. But a conversation you had, Dylan, really caught my attention on this. Yeah, so I talked with Travis Knudsen at Lane Regional Air Protection Agency, or LRAPA. So listeners, you remember us saying all the local air quality authorities rolled up into DEQ. All but one did, and El Rapa is the exception. It's in Lane County. And Travis's explanation of PM 2.5 and health really made the facts sink in for me, too. When you're talking about particulate matter, there's two different categories. There's PM 2.5 and PM 10. And what those numbers represent, the 2.5 and the 10, is essentially the size of that small particle. And PM 10 is still, you know, it's, it's still an air pollutant. It's still not good for your health. But that particle size is large enough that PM 10 is something that your lungs can exhale. Um, and it's not as consequential to the human health. However, the PM 2.5 particles, they're small enough that, yeah, they get so deep into your lungs. Um, I think it's the bronchi that I, if I'm recalling my yeah. sort of uh, medical sort of knowledge there, correct or not, but they get so far into your lungs that they, they literally do become trapped. From Elrapa's point of view, we're, we're air quality experts, at least when it comes to monitoring the air and figuring out what's in it and ways to sort of protect yourself from it. But we're not certainly medical professionals in any sense of the word. Um, but having that perspective from someone who can talk a little bit more about the long-lasting, profound health consequences of breathing, you know, the smoke and why why it's something that everybody should take seriously. I think, you know, Oregon Health Authority, there are a whole bunch of brilliant people over there. Hi, I'm Gabriella Goldfarb. I'm the Environmental Public Health Section Manager in the Oregon Health Authority. And environmental health, we deal with a wide array of threats to human health and also how can we build resilience among people in Oregon to withstand a range of effects from everything from climate to toxic contaminants. We work in partnership with you folks at DEQ. In general, DEQ tells us what you find in the environment. You're the ones who know to measure what's in our air, water, and land. And then you come to us to be able to explain what it means for public health. 
what has OHA's sort of journey been around air quality and that science and learning about the health impacts of poor air quality from a time when we were looking at things like total suspended particulates all the way to understanding what the real impacts of um, smaller particles are? So we follow the science. A couple of decades ago, people were focused and science was focused on small particulates, you know, particulate matter, they call it PM. And they used to focus a lot on PM10, which stood for 10 microns. And the big change is that the more they looked and the better the ability to measure smaller and smaller things, um, agencies like EPA and DEQ, um, the scientists could then look at what was in the air and look at health outcomes across large populations. And they found that even um, something as small as 10 microns, there were worse effects from particles that were even smaller than that. So we've known for a long time that breathing particles, small, tiny fragments of anything that burns is bad for your health. And the science evolved over time to understand that really very small particles, what we call particulate matter 2.5 microns in length, can get deep into the lungs and cause health effects that I'll mention in a minute. But just so people understand what 2.5 microns is, what PM 2.5 means, you would need to string 30 PM 2.5 particles in a line to span the width of a human hair. So we're talking super, super tiny particles. And this is a size that's very common in burned material, whether that's smoke from wildfires, smoke from field burning, smoke from wood stoves. You know, these small particles can get deep into your lungs. And the health effects are different for everyone. So the same exposure affects people differently. Uh, it depends on how long you're exposed, your age, what your individual health status is, whether you have any pre-existing conditions like asthma or heart disease. All those things play a significant role in determining whether someone is going to experience health problems from exposure to smoke to PM 2.5. And, you know, the level of exposure when we're talking about wildfire smoke, which is really on people's minds these days, depends on how long you spend outdoors versus indoors and how well you can keep your indoor air clean. So, you know, the particles when they're suspended in the air, again, they're really tiny. They can reach deep into the lungs and they can enter the bloodstream. And, you know, that means it can affect the lungs, heart, possibly other organs and tissues. And there have been lots of scientific studies, both in laboratories and looking at big populations that link this kind of particle pollution to problems like, you know, we would all be familiar, increased respiratory symptoms like your airways are irritated, you cough, you have difficulty breathing, but there's more systemic effects, decreased lung function, of course, aggravated asthma, irregular heartbeat, heart attacks, um, and sometimes it can actually cause death in people with heart or lung disease. And, and these pollutants can contribute to these kinds of health effects in everybody, but those most susceptible and vulnerable include infants, children, pregnant women and their fetuses, the elderly, and again, those with existing lung, heart, or liver diseases, and the people who are engaged in prolonged physical activity outdoors or are um, houseless and, and exposed to the I mean, elements. I was really stunned. People may not know this, but when you're a communications person for an agency, that does not mean you know everything about the agency. It means you learn things as you need to know them. 
I did not realize that PM 2.5 sticks in your lungs and in fact goes in your bloodstream, which is why it's so important that we have these regulations and forms of monitoring now. You know, Lauren, as I kind of step back and think about all the things we've learned in putting together this podcast, something that stands out to me is how the focus of regulating and responding to smoke in Oregon, it used to have to do so much with wintertime and wood smoke produced by people heating the homes by burning wood. And now there's been this shift towards wildfire smoke, smoke that's coming in the summertime. And, you know, there's just so many things that we're having to do to respond as an agency and just think about how it's affecting people, how we can play a part in communicating the information that people need to protect their health. Yeah, it was interesting to learn about that wintertime air quality impact has been sort of dealt with. And really part of what was interesting for me was listening to people talk about the past 60 to like 80 years of air quality history and policy and regulation. And in looking back in such a condensed period of time, you get a bit of a time-lapse video of all of those regulations. And at any particular moment in time, it can feel like things are moving really slowly and that we're not keeping pace with what people are really experiencing. But when you look back in this format through that time lapse video at field burning and then the Clean Air Act and regulating PM10 and then regulating PM2.5, you can see how that progress really does get made over time. And in part two of Where There's Smoke, we'll talk about how major events can spark the next iteration of that sort of regulation. And then in part three, we'll talk about what that's looking like. Travis sets us up for part two, the present episode of the Where There's Smoke series. I remember when conversations were being had about the outlook for the 2020 wildfire season, and the outlook was pretty concerning. Going through the majority of the summer, I remember we made it into June, you know, July, and then August. There hadn't been many wildfires across the state of Oregon at that time. And there was almost a sense that we were lucking out, like we dodged a bullet on this one. And then essentially there was a spark. There was a beginning of a fire in some place in some form. And you combine that with these dry easterly winds that were pretty strong. And that allowed the fires to just explode. Thank you for listening to Green State, the Oregon Department of Environmental Quality's podcast. And thanks to all the voices who contributed to the conversation. Our music is by Jason Shaw at audionautics.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, make sure you subscribe so you get our upcoming episodes. You can listen pretty much anywhere you get your podcasts. Feel free to rate and review. And if you have any questions or ideas for topics for us to cover, you can reach us at 503-451-0585 or by email at green.state.oregon.gov. To find out more, go to dequblog.com slash greenstate.